Everyone else, let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. As we've been working through Hebrews for a number of weeks now, we've reached Hebrews chapter 3. A reminder for those who haven't been here, the book of Hebrews is written to Christians who, in the midst of persecution and difficulty, are tempted to leave their faith in Christ and go back to what is more comfortable, more familiar, more culturally acceptable. And the author of Hebrews is writing to challenge them that there is nothing they could ever turn to that would surpass what Jesus has to offer. So this morning, as we continue in our study of Hebrews, we're in Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 7 through 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. A number of years ago, a man named George Matheson was preparing uh, for the ministry. And in a day before uh, there was much help for those with disabilities, he was struck tragically with an illness that led to his eventual blindness. Light got dimmer and dimmer, and he was unable to read, which made him unable to study, which made him unable to pursue the calling that he felt God had given him in his life. And he, at a very young age, in his 20s, became fully dependent on his sister. He had to move in with his sister, and she cared for his needs and tended to him and provided for him. Until the day when she began courting a, another young man, and they fell in love, and she was to get married. At which point, she was going to move out of the country with her new husband and leave George Matheson behind. And on the day of her wedding, George was unable to attend because of his blindness and the lack of anyone to care for him. And so as his sister was getting married, sorry, I need some lyrics here, which I don't see. There we go. As his sister was being married, George Matheson wrote these words. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. 
George Matheson needed a love that would not let him go. We all in our Christian life need a love that will not let us go. And yet as God's people, we face days where we suspect that that love does not hold us the way we want it to. Where we are on a journey and we are not certain if we'll be led to the right ending. These questions we all deal with at some level. Do I trust the one who leads me? And do I believe he will take me where I want to go? For George Matheson, he believed that love would not let him go. For the author of Hebrews, writing to a people dealing with those questions, being persecuted for their faith, suffering the loss of, of family, of jobs, of, of position, of everything that they wanted, Wondering, is it worth it? Do I trust the one who leads me? And do I think he's going to get me where I want to go? We face those questions when life doesn't go the way we expected or wanted. When we lose a loved one. When money is tight. When friends distance themselves from us because of our faith. When obedience to Christ seems unreasonable or uncomfortable. Our hearts naturally ask, is this the right path? Do I trust the one who leads me? To answer these legitimate and honest questions of the heart, the author of Hebrews takes us to a time in the history of God's people when they asked the same questions and decided that their hearts would answer, no, we do not trust the one who leads us. And their failure to trust God serves as a warning to God's people in the day of the author of Hebrews and to us today. And from their loss, we gain critical insight into what we need to know when questions arise, when we are wandering in the wilderness between the deliverance that God has given and the promised land that He leads us to. The lessons we see here are that the journey can be long and our hearts can be misled, but God can be trusted. Let's begin with seeing that the journey can be long. Writing to Hebrew Christians, to, to Jewish followers of Jesus in the first century, the author of Hebrews looks back at their history as a people for a timely example. And he quotes a psalm, Psalm 95, which is written about what happened after the events at the crossing of the Red Sea. So in verses 7 through 8, he writes, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Just as an aside, we see that the author of Hebrews is convinced that, that the Old Testament, including Psalms written by David and other human authors, are nonetheless the writings of the Holy Spirit to God's people and have the authority of God's Word as the Holy Spirit says these things. After passing through the Red Sea, the Israelites found themselves in the wilderness and time and time again, when things got difficult, they complained and they rebelled against Moses and against God because they did not trust God's word enough to obey his command. And because of that, they had to wait one generation. The people of God had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they could enter the promised land. And why that matters is because the Exodus story is not just historical fact. It is that. But it is more than that, because the authors of Scripture, time and again, take the Exodus story and place us into it and say, this is the story of God and how he delivers his people 
And you don't step out of Egypt, and in your next step, you're in the promised land. Instead, there is a long journey. And during that journey, God's people are tested. The point at hand is, as verse 16 says, Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Leaving Egypt was the beginning of the story of deliverance for God's people. But there was a long journey ahead of them. And then in verses 17 through 19, he says, With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Who made God angry? Was it not those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were made unable, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. He said it wasn't enough just to leave Egypt. They had to persevere through the journey and make it to the promised land. Children of God, the scripture is filled with warnings like that. The book of Hebrews is known for its repeated warnings like that. We believe from scripture that you cannot lose the salvation of God. It is given to you by grace. You cannot lose it. And he keeps you by grace, preserves you until the end. But many who seem to set out on that journey do not get to the end. Not because God has failed. Not because God has taken from them what they received by grace, but because they did not have the salvation to begin with. The journey is long. And those who receive the grace of God will persevere, will continue to the end. Verse 14 says, We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So for us today, these warnings are still true. The journey of salvation is grace from beginning to end. But those who by unbelief turn away from the grace of God and set it aside do not receive entrance into what God has promised. The journey is long. And on that journey, we are tested. We are tested to see if we will continue in the way that God has given. Will we follow his path? Will we do things his way? Now, maybe that language of testing the idea that God would test us, a God of grace, would test us rather than give us the comfort and peaceful life that we want? Maybe that idea seems strange to you, but if so, it is because you have learned wrongly of God. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. And that word trial is the exact same Greek word as tested that we see in Hebrews. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. Difficult circumstances, struggles, tests, trials in the Christian life are not the exception. They're the rule. Don't think that following Jesus promises a trouble-free life. Don't measure God's love by how easy you have it. Don't confuse being blessed with being comfortable. You follow a Savior who said, in this world you will have trouble. Paul said anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. And die. The journey may be long and filled with challenges, but that's not a failure on God's part. It's not an oversight. It's by design. The road that we walk in the footsteps of Christ 
is a difficult road. And it is intended to test us. Not because God needs to see something. God knows our hearts. The testing is not for God's sake. The testing reveals what God knows to be there. The testing shows that you belong to the Lord and it results in glory to God because you've chosen Him in spite of everything else. I always think of Job, the story of Job. From the perspective of Job, is confusing because he doesn't know why all these horrible things are happening to him. But to the reader, we know what's causing it all. How does Job begin? It begins with God bragging to Satan, the accuser, about Job's faith. He said, I have, there's no one like him who serves me so well, who loves me so purely, whose faith is so on target. Have you seen Job? And Satan says, no, 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 no. You're, you're giving him everything he could possibly want. Take it away. He'll reject you. And God gives the accuser, Satan, permission to remove blessing from Job's life until Job has nothing left. He's physically ill. He's miserable. His wife has turned against him. His children are gone. His possessions are gone. And yet, what does Job do? He worships. He worships God. Because he loves the giver, not the gift. The creator, not the creation. And that shows, and before you know, what God is doing, he's saying, look, you've taken everything from him, and look at how faithful my servant is. His love is pure. His love is true. His love is right. He has been tested, and now it is on display that I am worth more than anything to him. Peter says it as well. I'm going to quote a long section of 1 Peter chapter 1 here, beginning in verse 3, because it follows this whole pattern and explains the role of testing and trial. And every time you hear the word tempt, test, or trial, it's the same Greek word that we use here. According to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, Kept in heaven for you. That's the promised land. That's the good thing that we are seeking. The inheritance of God. The blessing that he gives us. But it's kept in heaven. We don't have it now. It is ahead of us. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. At the end of the long journey. In this, in this hope, this reward, this inheritance, you rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying is the journey to what is promised and what we hope for is a long journey. And on the way there, our faith is tested and it is tried. And we hold out for what we're moving towards. But we're, we're tested. And what happens when we are tested and, and our test proves that our faith is genuine and valuable and true because we persevere. It results in praise and glory and honor. For whom? Are we crossing the finish line in heaven? And people saying, praise, glory and honor to you. No, it results in praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ. 
Because our perseverance shows that he is worth whatever the world throws our way, whatever God allows to come our way, whatever Satan tries to put in our way. He is supremely valuable. And in our testing, we demonstrate that. The journey can be long. And we will be tested. But that testing proves the value and goodness of God. The danger of the long journey, as we see here, though, is the second point, that the heart can be misled. Your heart can be misled. Verses 10 through 11. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. I find the wording here really interesting because when we think of somebody going astray or somebody falling away from the faith, what what do we picture? We we generally picture their actions. Oh, I I saw his Facebook photos. I think he's falling away. We we picture actions or maybe we picture doctrine. They're 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 believing false things and therefore they are falling away from the truth. But but look where where the author of Hebrews places falling away. Where does it happen? Verse 10. They always go astray in their hearts. Verse 15, do not harden your heart. Verse 12, take care lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart. Now the heart in in this worldview is is more than just emotions. It's it's the whole seat of, of what you desire, who you are, what you care about, what you focus on. Our impulse is to locate unbelief in the mind because belief is a matter of Doctrine, right? But Scripture, the Holy Spirit, tells us that it is an unbelieving heart that is a danger to us. Before we ever leave God with our actions or our words or our doctrine, we first leave Him with our heart. Our heart turns towards something else. It's like teaching children to ride a bike. Has anybody ever taught a child to ride a a bike without training wheels? And you're running behind them holding on and eventually you've got to let go. At least one of my children in particular had a very, very hard time looking that way while riding the bike. Because there's so much cool stuff to see over here or over here. And and what happens if you're holding a bike straight ahead, but you look over here? For a new bike rider, it just goes like this. And you spiral down to a skinned knee. Or, Or marching band. I was in marching band for years. And one of the main things they had to drill into us, no pun intended, was that you always look straight ahead. Don't, don't. If your family's cheering on the sides, don't look over at them. Because even if your eyes go that way, you're, you stop marching straight. That, that's what the heart does. What your heart is turned towards, everything else follows. You will find beliefs that justify what you love. You will find doctrine that corresponds with what you want to be true, with what your heart desires. And your actions will follow, but it all comes from your heart. For the Israelites, their hearts were set on other things. Their comfort, their reputation, their their own agenda or their fears. And and their heart being set on those things led to them abandoning God and his ways. Because, you know, we do this as well. False teaching, false gospels and and poor evangelism does this. It, It looks at what people really want. Where are their hearts turned? And then let me put Jesus right here where you're already looking, and convince you that Jesus will get you there. You want prosperity? You want to be wealthy? Jesus is going to make you rich. You you want 
the society to be transformed into this way that you want it to be? Well, that's what Jesus was all about. Follow Jesus and, and we'll make society like this. You want your life to look this way? Jesus will get you there. And what happens inevitably is that when Jesus fails to get us to the, the thing our heart is really set on, we don't need him anymore. Because he is not the goal. He is not the object of our affection. He is not the pursuit of our heart. He is a means to an end. And when he ceases to move us towards what we really want, we have no need of him. That's why the greatest commandment in Scripture, and this is something Jesus and the Pharisees agreed upon, the greatest commandment, Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. Heart comes first. Not that soul and might are meant to be very distinct things from your heart. But the point is you will always follow what you love. And many people, for a season of their life, they'll follow Jesus in hopes that Jesus will get them to what it is their heart is really set on. And when he doesn't do that, you have no need of him. He disappoints you. You, you don't trust him anymore. Jesus tells a parable to this effect about how the gospel is like a seed that is planted on different soils. And some of it's on the path and it gets snatched away. You, you never even believe it to begin with. Some's on, on rocky soil. And, it, and it, because of all the rocks, it, it doesn't bear root. And so without roots, as soon as there's difficulty, it just withers away. But, but there's another, a third, that follows, falls in the thorny soil. And as the, the seed begins to sprout and grow, the thorns wrap around it and choke it until it withers and dies. And in Luke 8, Jesus explains the meaning this way. He says, as for the seed that fell in the thorns, it's people who hear, but as they go their way, they're, they're choked out by cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Your heart can be misled. But don't think that the only danger to your heart is some false religion or some pernicious, obviously evil doctrine or belief system or worldview. Your heart, more likely, is going to be misled by things like the daily cares of life, riches, pleasures, the image of what life should be that this or that person is living out on their social media and you want to be just like them. So what do we do? The heart wants what the heart wants. How, who are we to think we could change what our heart wants? Well, we have the Spirit of God. The heart can be trained. The heart can be disciplined. The heart can be guided. It's one of the things we do in worship. When we gather together in worship, if I were to just stand up here for the whole time, which I know you don't want me to do, and instead of us singing songs, I just said, God's love will never let you go. He's not going to give up on you. Okay, that's fine. And that's true. But how different is it to put those words to music so that you're singing in a way that excites your emotions and your feelings and trains your heart that when it hears, oh, love that will not let me go to feel a certain way. Or when we confess our sin to not just say, yeah, I was wrong. Let's forget about it. But to instead take time to say, this is wrong. I have done wrong and I need the grace of God to train your heart to feel grief over your sin and joy over salvation. You're disciplining and training your heart. That's why the author of Hebrews here in verses 12 and 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living, living God. 
But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Watch your heart, yes, but watch one another's hearts. We are not alone in watching our hearts. And we need to look out for each other to make sure that we're not tricked into trusting something that can't really help us. So when you hear your brother or sister, their heart being led away into something else, even the beginnings of it, intervene, speak truth, call their heart to be rightly fixed on the only source of peace and truth and satisfaction and allow others to speak that truth into your life. Be in community with people. Don't just show up for an hour and a half on Sunday morning and that's it. Be connected throughout the week, whether it's through Bible studies and community groups or or other projects that we do or just getting together over coffee. Connect with God's people and open yourself up to them in a way that they can know where your heart is being led and can speak truth when they see your heart being misled and you can love them in the same way as well. That's what the body of Christ is for. He has given us one another, that our hearts may not be misled. But the main message we need to hear in this passage, the exhortation, the encouragement, the truth that keeps us moving on the right path is this, the Lord can be trusted. The journey can be long and your heart can be misled, but the Lord can be trusted. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness, you may feel a little intimidated and overwhelmed by these warnings. The Israelites faced 40 years in unfamiliar lands, needing to trust the Lord for every meal, fearful of the hostile nations around them and ahead of them in the promised land, wondering if it was so bad for them that they began to wonder, hey, maybe we did the wrong thing by leaving slavery. Maybe slavery is better than what we're experiencing right now. That's how bad it was for them. They were leaving a familiar past through an uncomfortable present into an uncertain future. That's disorienting. And now, having seen what we already saw, that the journey can be long and the heart can be misled, you too might feel similarly overwhelmed, weary, not sure if what God calls us to do is worth what He calls us to endure. If the easier life that might be behind us or what we think was easier might really be the better choice than what's ahead of us. And the message of this passage is so key. Follow me on this. Verses 18 and 19. To whom did God swear that, he would, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were made unable, unable to enter because of unbelief. They could not finish the journey because of their disobedience. But what is the root of disobedience? The root of disobedience is unbelief. It's been that way since the first temptation to the first sin when the serpent came to Eve. Did he say, Eve, is God really real? Does God really exist? No, that's not the unbelief that that we're tempted with. He said, did God really say this? Isn't God withholding his best from you? The root of disobedience is unbelief. But what do they not believe? That's a critical question because I suspect that probably none of you in this room are sitting there thinking that you suffer from or in danger from unbelief. 
Because we believe God exists. We believe the Bible stories. We believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's great. But as James says in James 2, yeah, you believe God is one. You've got good doctrine. You do well. But even the demons believe that. And they take it so seriously that it makes them shudder. Okay, It's not a matter of God's existence. The Israelites in the wilderness didn't suffer from unbelief about God's existence. They saw the cloud. They saw the pillar of fire leading them daily. It wasn't unbelief that God was real. It was unbelief that God could be trusted. Could they trust God to meet their needs? Could they trust God to get them to the promised land? Could they trust God to do what was really best for them? Verses 8 and 9 says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. The Israelites put God to the test. And they saw his works. They saw the parting of the sea. They saw the defeat of Pharaoh. They saw the destruction of their enemies. They saw him providing water and food. And yet, when they arrived at the border of the promised land, what happened? With all of that that they'd seen, testing God and witnessing his works, they said, yeah, it ain't happening. We can't do that. And they backed away. And God said, okay, let's try this again in 40 years. Let's see if you've thought it better since then. They arrived at the border of the promised land and decided they did not trust God enough to follow through and that the threats before them were too great. And so verse 10 and 11, God says he was provoked with that generation, said they always go astray in their hearts and they have not really known God's ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They'd seen God's works and yet did not recognize how he works. Christian, that is the challenge before you. You believe in God. Great. You believe Jesus died for your sins. Wonderful. But do you trust him to carry you the rest of the way home? Do you believe that whatever you encounter, whatever you face, whatever trials and difficulties and disappointments and losses, he's working in your favor and his way is still best? Do you trust him enough to live his way? To make the hard choices and sacrifices that are a part of discipleship? Do you trust him with your finances and your budget enough to give? Do you trust him enough to rest one day in seven? Do you trust him enough to lay down whatever quarrel you have with another person and forgive them? Do you trust him enough to serve your spouse day in, day out, regardless of how they respond to you or whether or not they reciprocate? Do you trust him enough to put yourself in uncomfortable positions that enable you to serve people in need? But hear this, if you've tuned out, if I said something that got your mind thinking along a different path, circle back in with me here. I want you to hear this clearly. The message of the gospel, the message of, the, of Scripture here is not you need to try harder to trust God. That may be true, but that's not the most important thing. The message I want you to hear is the Lord can be trusted. He is trustworthy. The commands of God, the calls to obedience and sacrifice are always accompanied in Scripture by the promises of God. Abraham, go, leave your father's house and go to this land I'm going to show you. 
And I will provide for you. I will make your name great. I will give you a nation. Moses, go and speak to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And I will deliver them. Disciples, church, go and make disciples of all nations. And I will be with you always to the very end of the age. The promises of God are not rewards for obedience. Listen to this. The promises of God are not rewards for obedience. The promises of God are fuel for obedience. The promises of God give you the strength, the fuel, the reason to do what he's called you to do. Do you believe God's promises? If you do, you will live the way he calls you to live. Go the way he calls you to go. And that that will lead you to the joy that you are truly seeking. To make it through the wilderness, the Israelites needed to believe that the destination was worth it and that God would get them there. If they did not believe those things, they would stop following and they would have never arrived. Christian, check your heart. Do you believe that what God has in store for you in this life and in the next is is worth it? And do you trust the way he calls you to get there? As we wrap up, I want to send one more exhortation to your hearts, lest they be led astray. How do we know, how do we know that God can be trusted? You know, the the people wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, they had seen the works of God. They had tested him and seen his works. They'd seen that he could part the sea and provide bread from heaven and defeat their enemies. We haven't seen that, have we? The Israelites tested God and saw his works And that was to be the basis of their trust in him. Christian, what we have seen is a mightier work of God than that. And that is the basis of our trust. In Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, how do we know God is for us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That is the mighty work of God. When God is tested, this is what He shows us. That God sent His Son Jesus to take on human form, to die in our place. That is what God is willing to do for you. That, when tested, that is what He does. His love, His commitment to us, and His power have been tested. We've seen His works, that He has given up Jesus and raised Him from the dead. He has shown there's no limits to his ability to save and no limits to his love for us. As David says in Psalm 62, one of my favorite verses. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. In the cross, we see the power of God winning the victory over sin and death and the enemies of God's people. And we see the love of God that he who had no obligation chose to lay down his life for us. Can such a God be trusted? Absolutely. If he would give up his own son for you, and indeed he has, how will he not also with him give us everything we need for life and for godliness? No matter how long the journey, no matter what tempts your heart, God can be trusted. Abide with him. Remain with him. I wanted to quote some of the verses or some of the lines from our last song here that we're about to sing to kind of illustrate this point. 
but I couldn't narrow it down. So rather than quote all four verses of the song, I just want you to pay attention to it as we sing here in a moment. Recognize the words again and again point us that from beginning to end of our salvation, from our first steps in the Lord to our dying breath, we are assured again and again that on the long journey, God will provide. He can be trusted because the Lord in all things will provide for us. He has shown us that in Jesus Christ. He who gave us His own Son. How will He not also with us provide all things? Can you trust such a God? Absolutely you can. Do not fall away by unbelief. Don't fail to believe that God can be trusted. Trust His promises and let them fuel your obedience on the long journey to what He's promised. Let us pray that by the power of the Spirit that He has given, that that would be true of each of us. We thank You, Heavenly Father, that You have provided for our need. From life's beginnings to very end, on the long journey, despite all that would seek to mislead our hearts and all the things that draw our heartstrings away from You and call us to question whether You care, whether You are able, once God has spoken, two times have I heard that God is powerful, And with God, there is steadfast love. Teach us to trust you, Heavenly Father. Let us not waver through unbelief, but let us persevere in the journey to the end because you have provided and will always provide for your children. In the love of Christ, in his name we pray. Amen.